Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. And most of all, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've allowed us to gather here like this. Uh, we thank you that you have provided this place, God, just uh, all around us, literally in the, the building that we are in and in the company that we are in right now, we see a reminder of your faithfulness and your goodness to us. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for what it has meant to so many of us for so many years. And God, as we are in uh, like the very beginning stages of a new season of setting out, uh, we take so much comfort in knowing that you are with us, that you have been faithful in the past and that you will be faithful in the future. Uh, we pray that this is a sweet season this summer here at Bridges as we prepare for the new season we start this fall. God, we pray now as we turn to your word that you would just quiet our hearts before you. Um, as we're meeting in the late afternoon, God, for some of us, uh, the, the stress and the tension and the anxiety of starting a new week tomorrow might be starting to bubble up. I pray that your spirit would cause that to cease. I pray that you would turn our hearts toward you. I pray that you would allow us to put out distractions and concerns and commune with the living God as you are here in our midst. Speak to us through your word, we ask. We need it to live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I keep, I've caught myself like four times in the few moments that I've been speaking already where I'm about to say, well, good morning, but it's not morning. Good afternoon. Uh, so good to be with you all. Um, can we just, I'm not going to make you stand up because I know for dads that's not the way we roll, but let's just uh, say thank you to the dads in our midst. If you are a father, if you are a father, we love you and we honor you uh, and we're grateful for you. And I've shared this, I think, in every Father's Day in the past few years. Father's Day is one of the lowest attended church attendance days of the year. Yep, because dads just want to go golf and, or, or whatever. And so if you're a dad and you're here today, we really honor you because this is a good place to be. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, I want to say thank you to Elder Anthony for bringing a wonderful word last week um, about how we are the body. And uh, I'm sorry that I wasn't here. Sorry I wasn't here for our first week here at Bridges. Uh, my wife and I were in Iowa uh, where her best friend from high school got married and I got to officiate that ceremony. And I know some of you are like, oh, Iowa. But we were without our kids, so it was amazing. It was a, it, we love our kids, but it was a wonderful kind of long weekend getaway. And uh, I'll tell you what, you can go to Iowa City and have a lot of fun. So uh, it's good to be back. Oh, we're in Mark as we have been for a while, but not for too much longer. Uh, tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Mark chapter 12, 35 to 44. This is what it says. Well, I'll give you like 10 seconds to get there. This is a, this is a much larger drop than the first step at our old building. So if I go down, there could be, could be a bigger deal than uh, at the old building. I need to stop hanging my toes off the edge. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, There was a time in our country, this is in the late 1960s, where we actually had two professional football leagues. There was the older, more established, generally considered to be more talented, higher level of football, National Football League, the NFL. And then there was the new, young, upstart league, considered not to be quite as good, not to be as quite as quality football, the American Football League, the AFL. In 1967, those two leagues decided to send their champions to play each other in what was billed at the time as the World Championship football game. That started in 1967. Three years later, in 1969, that was the first year that it was called the Super Bowl. And in 1969, the Super Bowl pitted the big bad Baltimore Colts from the NFL against the New York Jets from the AFL, led by their brash young quarterback, Broadway Joe Namath. It was expected to be a massacre. The NFL had dominated the previous two championship games. The Colts were considered a far superior team. The uh, betting line coming into that game was 19 and a half points. So the Colts were expected to win by almost three touchdowns. At an award ceremony in Miami, where the game was going to be played, three days before that game was played, the quarterback for the Col- or for the Jets, excuse me, Joe Namath, was receiving an award. Uh, legend has it he had, he had put a few back already. And someone from the crowd, a Colts fan, yelled out something to the effect, hey, you guys are going to get crushed on Sunday. And Joe Namath stopped in the middle of the award ceremony and addressed the Colts fan in the crowd, and he said, hey, buddy, I got news for you. We're going to win on Sunday, and I guarantee it. The media heard about this, and over the next three days, they gave Joe Namath many opportunities to back off of his guarantee, and he did not. He doubled down, and he tripled down, uh, saying that they, he guaranteed that the Jets were going to win the Super Bowl. And then they went out on Sunday against the Baltimore Colts, and they did just that. They held the Colts to seven points. They scored 16, and Broadway Joe Namath's guarantee of a victory in Super Bowl III became the thing of legends. And we love it. We're here for it, aren't we? Because we love when somebody can call their shot and then back it up. We love that Babe Ruth could step up to the plate and point to the sky 
and then crush a homer out of the park. We love that Ali could say, I am the greatest, and then step into the ring and prove it. We love, well, that's the royal we. Some of you love when Steph gets fouled for an and one, and he says, this is my bleepity bleep house. And then he goes out and he backs it up. Because we live in a world that loves winning. We live in a world that loves dominance. We live in a world that loves greatness. One of the highest values in our culture is to win. And if you can tell people you're going to win before you do, even better. There is almost nothing that gets rewarded more in our culture than winning and dominating. And actually, in the, the social media cultural moment that we live in right now, you don't have to actually win. You just have to tell people you're great, and as long as you can convince them you are, you get all the accolades of actually being great. We love greatness. But does God? See, we live in a, we live in a world that loves Dominance. We live in a world that loves winning. We live in a world that loves pride. We have pride everywhere. We got, we got hometown pride. We got school pride. We've got national pride. We've got gay pride. We have pride everywhere. And it is very easy for us as followers of Jesus who are part of his kingdom to start to be influenced by what the world values. And it is easy for pride to start to creep its way into our lives and into the life of the church. But is that the way that God wants it to be? It is hard to be humble. It's hard to be humble. Listen to what uh, the dictionary says. This is not like some great research. This is just Merriam-Webster. This is the definition of humble. It is not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. It is reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. It is ranking low in a hierarchy or scale. It is insignificant or unpretentious. For those of you who are like, is humility hard? After I read that definition, you should be like, yep, Humility is hard because that is literally like some of those things are considered the greatest sin in our culture. A spirit of submission. I mean, there's almost nothing that's looked down on more than being submissive, letting other people walk all over you, take advantage of you, not standing up for yourself, not getting yours. Uh, like when we read that, it's like how many of us are like, you know, okay, not arrogant. You know, maybe we don't like arrogance, but um, ranking low, uh, no thank you. Insignificant, no thank you. Humility is hard. And yet, what do we know that Scripture says? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are continuing today in our series in Mark called Let's Go. Uh, again, I've said that probably 50 times over the last year. And uh, unfortunately for some of us, maybe good for some of us, we're coming to an end. We just got a few more weeks in this series. And actually, this message that I'm preaching today, in some ways, uh, could and should be, I think, the capstone message 
for this series that we are doing in Mark, and I'll, I'll explain that as we get further into it. But just so we know, so we can remember the context for where we are as we are entering here into Mark in chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. Over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at the prior sections of chapter 12, and as you'll remember, many, some of you, hopefully, a couple of you, Jesus has come to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he has immediately been confronted by the religious, by the social, by the political leaders of Israel, and they are coming at him asking him questions. We've got the Pharisees, we've got the Sadducees, we've got the scribes, question after question, because they don't believe he is who he says he is, they don't like what he's about, they want to discredit him, they want to disprove him, they want to bring him down. So we got all these questions, and then the last verse, verse that we looked at two weeks ago, verse 34, the one that is right before the section we get to says this, after that, all these questions, Jesus answers them really well. It says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So all they're coming, they're coming with their questions, they're coming with their questions. He answers them so well that we get to this place where they're like, oh, we don't, we're, we don't dare to ask him any more questions. And then Jesus does something where he turns the tables. And that's the first part of the section that we're going to look at today. Jesus is like, you've been coming at me with all of these questions. Now I'm going to ask you a question. And as we start looking at these three what look like unrelated passages that we've kind of pushed together here for this message, what I want us to see before we dig into it is this. I think they're all related. I think actually there's a, there's a common theme that flows through all three of these passages that we're looking at tonight. Remember, or I haven't told you this, know this. This is the last teaching that we get from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark before he heads to his passion. So we get these three little stories this week, and then next week we're going to talk about the end times, a big chunk of it in chapter 13. But this is the last teaching we get from Jesus before he goes to the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and Sunday morning. And I think... Now, this is just Pastor Gary's opinion, so, uh, you know, feel free to push back if you don't agree. I think all three of these stories are about the same thing. I think they're all about humility, and I don't think that's an accident. As we get to the last thing that Jesus wants to share with his disciples, wants to share with his followers before he goes to the cross, he hits them three times with a reminder of what it's like to be a part of his kingdom, and that is that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, that, that being a part, being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus is a call to humility. And we're going to see three aspects of humility as we look at these three passages, uh, hopefully rather quickly. And the first one is this. The first thing that Jesus talks about is humility with God. Humility with God. So coming back to the text, uh, Jesus, uh, all these guys have been coming to him, asking him questions. He answers them all. No one dares ask him another question. And Jesus is like, how about I ask you a question? And it's like a little riddle from Rabbi Jesus. Starting in verse 35, this is what he says. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So here's what's going on here. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the scribes were the experts in the law. They were the lawyers of the day. There was no one in Israel who knew the Old Testament, who knew the Torah, who knew God's law better than the scribes. They were, it was what they were all about. And Jesus comes to the crowd, and presumably there are some scribes in the crowd, and he gives them an Old Testament riddle. He quotes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. 
It's a psalm attributed to David, which the scribes would have acknowledged and affirmed in this moment. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, and this is what he says. He says, David, speaking of God, said, the Lord said to my Lord. So the first Lord there is Yahweh. David said, God, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, that is the Messiah. That is the Christ. This was believed to be in Jesus' time, and many scholars still believe it to be a, a, a psalm about the Messiah. It's about the coming Christ. And so, so Jesus says, David said, God said to the Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And we know and believe that Jesus is actually sitting at the right hand of God in this moment. But the riddle is this. Everyone expected, and, and rightfully so, the scribes in particular, that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David's. And so what Jesus is asking in this moment is he is saying, why would David say to his great, 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 great grandson, why would he call him Lord? How many of you call your sons or your grandsons master, sir, Lord? The answer is, is none of them. So, so what was Jesus getting at in this moment? He is, he is poking some holes in their theology. He is, he, is, he, is, he is showing that they have some chinks in their armor when it comes to what they thought was a really buttoned up theology. They were not wrong. The Messiah was from David's line. But the problem was they had grossly misinformed expectations of what that Messiah was going to be. They thought the Messiah was going to be primarily defined by his relationship to David. And so they expected a Davidic Messiah, a kingly ruler, a militaristic leader, someone who was going to overthrow Rome, lead them back to the former glory that they had under King David. But in reality, the Messiah, who was standing in front of them in this moment, speaking to them, and they couldn't see it, he was less defined by his relationship to David than he was by his relationship to God. And that relationship to God was that he was him. He was God. And so it's not so much that Jesus is saying, you're totally wrong. He's just saying, you're very misinformed about who you expect the Messiah to be. You who think you know the scriptures so well, you can't answer kind of a simple question out of a psalm that you would be very familiar with. And so here's what I think he was saying to the scribes. You need to come to God correct. You need to come correct when you come to God. You need to come with some humility. He is God, you are not. And you need to have some humility in understanding that I might have a little bit of knowledge, but it is not nearly enough to encompass everything that could possibly be known about who God is and what he has done and what he is planning on doing. Jesus was saying, have some humility when you come to God. Now, uh, as it's Father's Day, uh, I could have gone in really hard in this moment about those of us who think we are always right, and oftentimes we are not that right. I have a thousand examples from my own life of knowing exactly what time we were supposed to be there and getting there an hour late. Of knowing, uh, just I flew Southwest a week ago, and you know on Southwest, that cattle car of the sky, you have to check in 24 hours in advance to try and get a good boarding section. And I was sure I knew what time our flight was. And I was wrong. And so we were in the C section to board. 
Beth and I got two middle seats. Because I was sure I was right, but I was wrong. And I think the word that Jesus had for those scribes 2,000 years ago is a word that he has for you and I today. We need to have some humility when we come to God. I know in a room this size, I know we could have, if we all talked about the garbage that we have been through in our lives, the frustrations and the disappointments we have had with God, we could be here all night. And it is, it is so easy for us to start to be like, you know, I would like to ask God some questions. I got some questions for God. And, and that's kind of just, look, I, well, I know we've been through some hard things, but there's some pride inherent in that, that heart. I, you know, if, if Jesus was here right now, and, and he is the kind of God who is like, bring me your questions. I don't think he's the kind of God who shuts that down. I think some of us would go in really hard on Jesus. Why did this happen? Who are, what, what, what kind of God are you? And I think at the end of that time, most of us would be in a place where we would be saying, I don't dare ask him any more questions. Because he is God, and we are not. And even though we think we have some understanding of who he is, some experience of who he is, he is the king of kings, lord of lords, creator of all. He has a view, a perspective that we could never possibly have, that we may never have. And I think all that Jesus is saying to us in this moment is when we come to God, we need to come with some humility. We could hang out here for a long time. would love to talk about just the state of the church today and denominations and how we basically spend a lot more time fighting with each other than we do advancing the gospel because we are so sure we're right about our secondary and non-essential theological points, but that's a sermon for another day. The takeaway is this. When we come to God, we need to come with humility. So that's it. That's the first one. Humility with God. As we move through this passage, uh, the second area of humility that I think Jesus points us to is humility with others. Humility with others. So Jesus kind of gives him this riddle, and then he goes into um, uh, like a warning. Starting in verse 38, he's going in on the scribes again. They've had, a hard, they've had a rough go of it here in chapter 12. He says, beware of the scribes. Now that word in Greek that is translated beware, uh, at its most basic meaning, it means look or see. But it has about 10 or 12 different nuances in Greek. And the one that we think that Jesus is drawing out here is not beware like um, avoid, not like beware of that pothole so you don't get a flat tire, but it's more like beware, watch them so you know what not to do. So he's saying beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why will they receive the greater condemnation? Because as we just talked about, there was nobody in Israel who knew God's word more than the scribes. God's word is his heart. God's word is the revelation of who he is. And so on the surface, nobody should have been closer to God than the scribes. No one should have been closer to his heart than the scribes. And yet Jesus is like, here's God's heart and here's the area that the scribes are working in. Because why? What are they trying to do? They're trying to impress the wrong people. They knew, they, they knew his law. They knew his heart. They knew what he called them to. And yet they were all about looking good for other people. They were trying to impress other people. And what is the root of that? It's pride. It's, it's wanting to be seen as 
being somebody, being important. It's wanting to have nice clothes and sit in the right place at church and have people greet you in the right way when they see you because they're so impressed with whatever your success or your academic credentials. They are trying to impress the wrong people. And I think Jesus is like, they're not humble. And the call in my kingdom is humility. Uh, some of you know, uh, I've talked about it in the past, I had a lot of experience growing up trying out for sports teams. Most of those experiences did not go well, as we've talked about in the past. But inevitably, when, whenever I went to tryouts, whether it was basketball or soccer or whatever it was, there were always like one or two kids who showed up to tryouts, and they looked really good. They had, you know, if it was basketball tryouts, they had the, the Nike dry fit basketball jersey. They had the Nike, the matching, I mean, come on, the matching Nike dry fit shorts. They might have like a sleeve or, you know, some sweatbands, a headband. They had, I was going to say they had the retro Jordans, but they weren't retros at the time. They were just the Jordans. They had the newest model of Jordans and they were brand new. They looked really good. But then the games would start. And it was like, I don't think these kids ever played basketball before. <laughs> so what did they do? They impressed all their peers. We're all like, man, where'd you get those kicks? Those are amazing. Those look sweet. But they didn't impress the coaches. And they were the ones that they needed to impress, right? They were trying to impress the wrong people. And I don't think it's that big of a leap to go from the scribes of 1 BC or 30, 32 AD, 30 AD, to us today in 2022 AD. We really struggle with trying to impress the wrong people. We I got to be careful here because this is both um, uncomfortable and self-condemning. We love our belts with the double Gs and with the H or the, the horse bit or whatever it is. We, we love the purses with the logos, the LVs or the whatever it is. We love the Rolexes. We love, this one hits close to home, we love the Jordans. Why do I love Jordans? because they're a solid shoe with good traction and great ankle support? Because I want people to think I'm cool. So I want to show them how, like, I want to impress them because I like wearing long robes and I like the seats of honor and I like people to greet me well. Like, we need to think as followers of Jesus Christ, why are we doing the things we are doing? Why are we consuming the things we are consuming? Look, at, at, one, at one level, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with a luxury car. But, but is it because you wanted it or because God wanted it for you? Because if you're like, I got it because it's very reliable and it will last me a long time and it gets great gas mileage. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Mr. Honda Accord, which like checks all those boxes as well. And so again, look, I know this is sensitive and especially in a place, place like the Bay where there is so much wealth and it, it, these things just like, you know, People sit down and 200 grand falls out of their pocket. It's like, you know, I need a new car and they go searching through the couch cushions. I know, like, I know what this place is like and, and it's just, we are called to live humble lives. We are called to live countercultural lives and I, we just need to be thinking, why are we doing the things we are doing? Why are we consuming the things we are consuming? And, and is it because we love to wear long robes to be seen in the marketplace? to get the, the seats of honor and, and to be greeted in the way that we want to be greeted. The call of Jesus is a call to humility. 
And he's saying, not only come to God humble, but he's saying, you need to be humble in the way that you interact with other people. Okay, so humble, humility with God, humility with others, and then the last one is uh, humility with ourselves. Humility with ourselves. And that's kind of a funny way to put it, but hopefully it'll make sense when we get through this. So the third part of this um, passage that we're looking at is the widow's offering. It could have and should have been its own sermon. Uh, We could have spent a long time here, but for the the sake of this series, we're not going to make it its own sermon. Uh, But Jesus and his disciples go to the temple, and they're watching people make their offerings into the temple offering box. And starting in verse 41, it says, Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So here they are at the temple. They're watching people making their offerings. It's funny reading the scholars on this. You know, they're like, well, how did Jesus know how much she gave? And how did he know that was all she had to live on? And it's like, he's God. He knows everything. And so let's not split hairs on this. But, but a bunch of rich people come, and they make very big offerings, and it looks really good. And then this poor widow comes, and she puts in two copper coins, based, literally like uh, pennies. Just she throws in two pennies. And Jesus says, look at her because she has given everything she has. And here's the contrast that he makes. He's like, there are a lot of people who came, and they gave a lot of money, but they gave it out of their abundance. It didn't, it didn't hurt them at all. And then here comes this poor widow, and she put in the offering box everything that she had. She gave it all. She came with such humility that she took God at his word that if she gave him everything, he would take care of her. And Jesus is like, that's what it looks like to be my disciple. Uh, I went to college in the Chicago area, suburbs of Chicago, and one of the things that we love to do or we like to do on weekends was take the metro, which is the train, downtown and spend you know, a weekend night in the city of Chicago. Uh, for those of you who are from the Midwest, you know this. For those of you who are native Californians, uh, there is a season called winter. And <laughs> in Chicago, uh, it can be particularly brutal. Uh, and so it was winter. And uh, my, a few of my friends and I decided to go spend a weekend evening in the city. So we took the train downtown. I don't really remember what we did. We went and got some food. Uh, we were walking the, the downtown streets of Chicago, evening time, winter, freezing, bitterly cold, wind whipping off of Lake Michigan. And just like here, uh, there are a lot of uh, homeless people there and a lot of people panhandling on the streets. And we came upon someone who was in ba- bad shape. Uh, he, he was clearly freezing, uh, was panhandling. And we were Christians, went to a Christian college, and we're like, look at how we're going to obey Jesus' commandments right here. We're going to help this guy. So a couple of us start digging through our pockets for a few extra bills, some change. You know, we're college kids. We don't have much. And as we're giving that money over to him, uh, my roommate who had just got a brand new Banana Republic wool overcoat. I don't remember if he bought it. I don't remember if his parents bought it for him. And like, I know it's like Banana Republic, but at the time, that was big time. And we're, you know, pulling out ones and twos. He takes the coat off of his back, and he gives it to that homeless guy right there on the street. And we weren't done hanging out in the city. And so he went the rest of the night 
freezing so that that guy could be warm. We gave out of our abundance. He gave all that he had. And here's what would be really easy in this moment as we look at this last section of this passage. It would be really easy for me to be like, to take this to, to, to tithing, to generosity, to uh, offering. It'd be really easy to say, you know, how are you doing with your tithing? How are you doing with your offering? How, how generous are you being? Uh, but this is not really about tithing. It's not really about your offering. At one level it is, obviously, but it's deeper than that. Uh, I'm hoping some of you in this moment, as we have spent almost a year in this book, as I asked this and been the primary teacher for the last year, I hope somebody knows, what's one of the main themes of the Gospel of Mark? You don't have to, you don't have to shout it out. If you know the answer, just know in humility, know that you got the right answer. What's one of the major themes we've just come back to over and over again as we have studied this beautiful gospel of Mark? Like the identity of Jesus, that's one of them. Uh, God's love for everyone, not just Israel. God's love for all people, that's one of them. But one of the major themes of this book, in fact, I would say, and this is why I say this is maybe the perfect capstone message for this series. One of the major, if not the major themes of the book of Mark is what? That Jesus and his disciples have been on the road together, that they have been following Jesus on the road. It has been what? It has been the the call of discipleship. It It has been discipleship. It has been the cost of following Jesus for whoever would gain his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? This is a picture of discipleship. This is, this is like the last enduring picture in the gospel of Mark of what it looks like to follow Jesus, not out of your abundance, but with everything that you have. This is the call of God on each and every one of our lives. See, we are really good at giving out of our abundance. We are not so great at giving our firsts. All those rich people who came into the temple that Jesus pointed out, they were taking care of number one first, and then they had some left over, and they were willing to give that to God. The poor widow came. She had two coins to her name. It was all she had, and she gave it to God, and that is what Jesus is calling his followers to do. It takes humility to give everything that we have. It takes humility to come to God and say, I believe you for who you are. I am going to give you everything. I am going to give you my firsts, not my leftovers, because I am so sure that you are who you are and that I want to follow you with my life. Humility, humility. It it takes humility to give everything we have. And this woman was a picture, not of generosity, when the offering plate went around, she was a picture of discipleship. She was a picture of what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus with our lives. And as, uh, as, we, as we wrap this up, uh, here's what's so beautiful about this passage. Uh, that woman was not just a picture of discipleship because just a few days after this, Jesus was going to do the exact same thing. She was Jesus not literally, but she was a picture of Jesus in that moment. Because we do not serve a God who says to us, I want you to give me everything 
just because I deserve it. We serve a God who says, I want you to give me everything because I have already given you my everything. Philippians 3, 5 through 11, this is what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave everything, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that every, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave us everything so that we might give him everything. And the question I want to ask all of us tonight is are we willing to give it all? It takes humility to give everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the, uh, the challenge of your word. We thank you that it encourages when we need encouragement and it convicts when we need to be convicted and it is literally the words of life. God, we ask that in some way the spirit of this poor widow who was willing to give everything she had to you would be the spirit that flows through our, our life here at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. God, I pray that we would not be living to get ours first and then looking to give you our leftovers. But I pray that we would bring to you our firsts. I pray that we would live so trusting that you are a, a man of your word, that you will do what you have promised, that we will joyfully sacrifice everything because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We pray that, that, this, um, that this truth from your word would sink deep into our hearts and lives tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We're not gonna have a, uh, a song of response. Uh, this is a moment to do any business with God that you might feel the Holy Spirit putting on your heart, uh, and I'll be back up afterwards to close us out.
It has been a joy to be with you tonight. Thank you for being here. We'll be back here again next week uh, at 4.30. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.